before we get to our passage in John chapter 8 this morning, uh, every year around this time, once I finally get the audited figures from Redemption, Redemption Central, I want to review with you very basically what kind of year we had in 2018 from a financial perspective. So we'll do that. Just very basic information. If you want more, I'll tell you how to get more information in regarding, uh, regarding this information. So <clears throat> our general budget offerings in 2018 were $1,154,000. That's the most we've ever had at Redemption Arcadia. We're, we're a church that's eight years old. Our budget was nine seventy-seven. Uh, and we even beat last year, which was a record year also of um, $1,105,000. Our expenses went up, and they were over budget. I'll explain a little bit more about that in a second. And they were certainly more than uh, last year. Nevertheless, we still ended up with a very healthy surplus of $121,000 this year against 153 last year, and a budgeted surplus of uh, zero. That's the way Neil Pitchell, our executive pastor, wants us to do the budgets every year. Is essentially, really, what do you plan on spending? And so that's what they look at. Uh, as we got into 2018 and realized that the giving was, was going above budget, um, we recognized we had a couple of needs that uh, needed to be satisfied, and we felt like the elders felt like we could finally satisfy those. Um, because of the heavy rain that we ex we've experienced, unlike uh, Phoenix, uh, recently, we found that uh, we had some pretty significant repairs that we needed to do to the parking lot. So we took care of those before they got any worse. That, in the long run, will actually save us money by doing that uh, earlier rather than later. But nevertheless, that was a little bit of a chunk. Uh, we also decided to add a staff member, and that was Allison DeSerafino. And frankly, uh, most people think that's the best money that we spent all year, getting to know Allison. That, was, that has been tremendous for us. Uh, and then uh, there's been some AV and music equipment that we, we've been putting off and putting off, and we finally, uh, we finally took care of that uh, as well in 2018 once we felt like we had a cushion, so we're, we, uh, we took care of that as well. Our Advent giving in 2018 was a little bit less than it was in 2019. Nevertheless, it's, it was significant. That's a very significant amount. $39,000, we're going to be able to bless three of our ministries, uh, each equally the, with, with $13,001. Uh, so uh, foster care and adoption, immigration, hope, and, and uh, hope for children in Ethiopia. We're going to be able to uh, bless those. And then uh, this may be, this, this, is the, this is the news that gets me the most excited. When we purchased this property and recognized that we were going to have to renovate it and spend about $2 million dollars, $2.1 million renovating it in addition to the purchase price. Uh, we knew that we needed a mortgage, which we do have a mortgage on this property. of uh, It's about $1,600,000 with MidFirst Bank. But in order to complete the process, we were also going to have to borrow $600,000 from what we call Redemption Central. In other words, the, the main uh, piggy bank of Redemption Church. So we borrowed $600,000 at the beginning of 2016 uh, from Redemption Central. By the end of 2018, three years later, we had reduced that amount to $152,000. Uh, at the beginning of 2019, 
um, with the additional building fund giving of $21,000, uh, which came in this last year, which, by the way, the building fund capital campaign was over uh, at the end of 2018. So this is just additional funding that we're getting from people who felt compelled by the Spirit to give or who were um, still finishing their commitment to the building fund. Nevertheless, it was really helpful. We applied that right to that loan. Um, we also took 70% of our surplus, our $121,000 surplus, and applied that to the loan, which we also did the year before, uh, as well as every month we pay $1,250 to Redemption Central in an effort to try to reduce that loan. So now we only have $36,000 left to go on that loan. Um, and we're really excited about that. That also just, that, that is, that's yay God and yay you. Um, that's significant. That will help free us up to do um, more ministry uh, as well once that's done. So we're planning on having that pretty well eliminated um, by the end of 2019. If you have any questions about this or would like further details, Neil Pitchell is our executive pastor over all of Redemption uh, Church, and he's the one who produces all of these reports, and <clears throat> some of you are reading ahead, that's fine. Uh, and you can email him. Uh, you can also email two, two of our elders. You heard one of their names mentioned earlier, Steve Wheeler and Jim Moreland. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's at CodyKimmel at RedemptionAZ.com. So... Um, those of you who have been around Redemption Church for any length of time, you probably have started to figure out that um, if somebody works for Redemption Church, their email is really, that's Redemption Church, any location, their email is really simple. It's their first and last name, all lowercase, no dots or dashes, at redemptionaz.com. You can get in touch with anybody um, that way. So just to let you know, Cody's address is up there, so... Um, so here we go. We're going to jump in now to John uh, chapter 8. Um, this is such a famous passage. This passage is iconic. And, and listen carefully to what I'm about to say. This is really important. This is one of the most well-known, maybe even the most well-known Bible passage by people who have never even read the Bible. Everybody knows this story. Everybody knows this narrative. And there's a little bit of irony in that, uh, which I'll get to. I will tell you, honestly, when I saw this passage on the schedule, I, I started squirming. I, I don't necessarily care for this passage because there's so much backstory uh, that I feel like we need to do. It's, it's a tough passage to talk about. So I looked. I looked for anybody, Cody, uh, Josh, Wheeler, um, Trey, uh, Aslan. My I, I asked my dog Moose if he would mind preaching it. He said no, he was busy with his toys, but he would have done a better job with this passage, I think. So um, it's a tough passage. Um, and I'm going to explain why. We're going to spend some time talking about why, it, the issues that it, that it brings up for some people. Uh, not only is the story of, of the woman caught in adultery well known, but I would argue it's one of the most misunderstood and misapplied passages in the Bible. One of the most misunderstood and misapplied passages. Um, and, and the way it's misapplied is, is actually two sides of the same coin. So here's the first side. There are Christians, people who have been saved by Jesus, who understand the incredible grace of being saved by Jesus, which Joe and James even talked about up here. Uh, there are Christians 
who then struggle with the notion of grace. For whatever reason, grace is okay with me, but not so much for some of these other people that I know. But they struggle so much with the notion of radical grace, which Jesus is all about, that they often skip this passage, or they dwell on what's known as the textual issue of the passage. If you have a Bible open to this passage, you'll see that it's probably set off by some lines, and there's a little explanation in there. The textual issue is that there are competent rhetorical and scholarly uh, schools of thought that claim that these 12 verses were not a part of John's original gospel text when he wrote it. He didn't write this into his uh, gospel. In other words, for those that struggle with radical grace, um, it's really not part of the Bible, and so we shouldn't pay any attention to it. Just read past it. And I agree, the textual evidence is pretty clear. This wasn't part of John's original document. However, the scholar, the New Testament scholar Donald Guthrie and several other New Testament scholars also say the same thing, say that there are uh, tremendous historical attestation, attestations. I should have picked a different word. I can't say that word. Historically, it's been attested to uh, by several different sources that this event actually did take place. It just wasn't included in the original gospel. And some scribe uh, or, or some such uh, translator later added it. At some point, we're not uh, sure. But on the other side of this coin, there are also many, many, many other people who use this story in the Bible to proclaim that Jesus teaches that we should never judge anyone for anything and that this account proves that Jesus' version of, loving, uh, of love is so freeing and compelling that we are all free to do whatever we want with absolutely no condemnation, no reprisals, or consequences. And if anybody questions us at all, all we have to do is claim the woman caught in adultery. That's it. And that's a drop-the-mic argument. That's the end of it. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've been in the middle of where that's been brought up. Now, both of these positions, the idea that we need to dismiss the grace that's shown in this passage and that we need to dismiss judgment, both of the, these positions have three flaws. Number one, uh, they, it, it has a poor understanding, I would argue, usually on purpose of who Jesus really is. Number two, uh, both of these arguments attempt to make Jesus into a one-dimensional caricature of what his mission and purpose really were. And number three, this may be the worst, uh, the desire to manipulate Jesus into their image rather than allowing the Holy Spirit to mold and conform us into the image of the Son of God, as Paul so clearly talks about in Romans chapter 8, is just so evident. I want Jesus to be a God who looks like me, who thinks like me, who understands the world like me. And, and it's Martin Luther's old saying, God created us in his image and likeness, and we've been trying to return the favor ever since. We want a God who looks and acts and thinks just like us. So I want to spend a little bit more time unpacking this to help set the context for the account, and then we'll get to the account, because I think it'll be helpful to understand what's really going on uh, in this passage. First of all, this is absolutely foundational. Jesus came not primarily, not primarily for judgment and condemnation, but he came primarily for reconciliation, because the world and, and we are broken. He came primarily for rec reconciliation, for restoration, for redemption, and for deliverance of sin. That's what he came primarily for. 
But he is not saying in this passage to what the woman did, it's all good, no worries, no problems. He's not saying that. Jesus is not okay with sexual misconduct. In fact, it's pretty clear from the rest of the scriptures that he's really, really against it. In fact, he rebukes her as he sends her away. He says, go and sin no more. Those who claim that this story frees us of any judgment for sin don't ever seem to read the whole story. They read the part they want, then they stop, and they start making proclamations. That's a problem when you do that with the Bible, taking uh, sections or verses of the Bible completely out of their context. That becomes a problem. But also, what we, all, what we don't recognize with that idea is that the intent of those guys who are bringing the woman to Jesus to trap Jesus, that's a problem too. They were bringing this woman to Jesus under, false, under sinfully false pretenses. They were not bringing her to correct her, to disciple her, and to restore her which is really what they're supposed to do as religious professionals. So that's a problem too. Yes, the woman is sinning, but so are they. And I believe that's why Jesus handles this the way he does. Jesus' first flinch is not to stone a person for their sin, but rather to point his finger to the Father and to forgive the person of their sin so that they can be reconciled and restored and they can have a new understanding of life. Now, there, there, there is God's holy and righteous wrath against sin. There is condemnation and judgment for sin, but that doesn't seem to be God's first flinch. His first flinch is patience and salvation. Jesus always exercised great patience with sinners, if you haven't noticed. Even the religious professionals with whom he had such a difficult relationship with. Yes, he was even... Uh, he was even patient with them, and his patience is reminiscent of uh, the end of last year when we went through all the minor prophets, and, and we saw the judgment of God for, the, for, for his people's sin, yes, but how patient he was before he executed that judgment. He often waited, here you go, centuries, Centur he warned and waited for centuries before he executed this How many of us in here have waited centuries before we judge somebody? Anybody in here? No. Okay. His patience is reminiscent of, of the prophets because he's also a prophet. He's the king. He's a priest. He's a prophet. And he's God. But we also need to remember that patience is not infinite. There's a point at which that patience is going to run out when it comes to something that God cannot abide in. Second of all, if there's never any judgment for sin, what, are the, what do we do with these verses that I'm about to read? And I've only selected a few. Um, and, and then the, of those that I selected, I ended up cutting some of those out too. But just listen to these verses. Um, and, and if you're somebody who likes to seech, uh, search and seek in the Bible those passages that buttress your opinion that God's never going to judge anybody for anything... You have, to, you have to deal with these verses, and there's no way you can reconcile these verses with that view. So in Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, there's a whole day dedicated to this, 
People will give an account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That should be the, um, the Twitter verse, by the way. So just think of Matthew 12, 36 before you put anything on, on Twitter. Romans 12, 2, uh, 2, 12, Paul writes, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Here's what Paul is saying in that verse. It doesn't matter what you think. If you've sinned, you're going to be judged for it. That's just the way it is. Hebrews 13.4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Uh, John 3.18, this, this one might be the most interesting one to me because it comes right on the heels of that iconic verse, John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Again, most people just want to stop right there, but Jesus goes on to say uh, this, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Romans 6.23, Paul writes, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Revelation 19.15, Jesus says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So there's those verses and others, and, and further, this logical path that one has to follow to assert that there's never any judgment or condemnation by Jesus for anything, it just makes no sense. It, it makes absolutely no sense. You can't logically un unpack this in any way, shape, or form. For if there is no evil, there's no sin, there's no bad anyone that, that anyone ever does, then why is there a Jesus in the first place? And here, I'm talking to people who want to have a foot in both camps. And, and there's many people like this. They, they attend church. They call themselves Christians. They want to have their foot in that, in that camp just in case. But they also have their foot in this other camp of living a completely worldly life and, and then stating, well, there's really no condemnation for me doing any of this anymore. You see, there's no point to Jesus if sinners don't have a need to be redeemed. There's just no point in it. Uh, we call this the mushy middle. The mushy middle that people try to have with Jesus, and here's what it, how, it's, how it's usually articulated. Oh, yes, Jesus was a, a wonderful man and a great teacher, but he's certainly not God. That mushy middle, it just doesn't, it doesn't work. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be God. So if he's a great and wonderful teacher, and he made that claim and you don't believe it, then you don't believe that he's a great and wonderful teacher. You've just lost your own argument. It's C.S. Lewis explaining that Jesus is either a liar or he's a lunatic or he's, a, he's the Lord. There's no other option there. And, and C.S. Lewis, Lewis would say that that's essentially intellectually bankrupt to say those things, which leaves us really with only two possibilities. Either Jesus is or he isn't. Either he's God or he's not. Either he's our savior or he's not. He either rescues us or he doesn't. And there's no hedging your bets. You can't hedge your bets. And so this becomes crucially important. The call is to either have the courage to be all in with Jesus or equally to have the courage to be all out. 
Because that's going to take courage too. Have the courage to be one or the other. Okay? And then there's the, well, what, what, wait, wait, what, what, what about, and usually that's followed with Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. The second most popular verse in the world by people who don't read the whole Bible. David Augsburger, you can look his, up his research. The most famous verse of, in, he's an academic, the most, the most popular verse of incoming freshmen uh, in college is Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge lest you be judged. But in the follow-up questions, it's like, what does Jesus say after that? I don't know. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem. So let's see what Jesus says after he says, do not judge uh, lest you be judged. So Matthew 7, 1 through 5. Jesus says, he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Then he gives this illustration of what he's really talking about. Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you, you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is, uh, there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So notice that there is a problem with judging at the very beginning, but we need to understand what kind of judging Jesus is talking about. That's why you got to go deeper on this stuff. So there is a problem with judging, but there's also, if you read further, you see that there is correction and discernment that is called for by Jesus. It's not just don't judge and that's the end of the sermon. He's also calling us to correction and discernment. So in, in verse 1, that, that word that we translate judge is the Greek word krino, and it literally means to separate as in condemnation. In other words, do not judge others for the purpose of condemning and separating them. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. Don't judge another person as if you are God. Because God is the only one who can judge in order to separate and condemn. He's the only one that can do that, not you. Instead, this is what you need to do. And, and by the way, he says, is that the way you want to be judged by other people? Certainly not. We don't want to be judged like by that by other people. We'd only like God to judge us this way if anybody is going to do it because his judgment is going to be perfect. So, so he, he, he's not saying... Uh, don't correct and don't use discernment and wisdom. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Rather, he's saying don't judge as if you're God because you're not. And then he gives us this illustration. He says, instead, what you need to do is you first need to take inventory of yourself. How many of you would agree that we live in a time where we're desperately short on self-awareness? Well, Jesus says this is really important to practice self-awareness, especially when it comes to your own issues. He says, take inventory of yourself first, and then you'll be better equipped to see and help the other person clear out their sin, not for the purpose of condemnation, but for the purpose of restoration and discipleship, for the purpose of bringing us together, not for the purpose of separating and dividing us. Now, listen closely to this. This might be the most important application today. Do we really believe that there is a life that is worth living that does not include discernment and correction? Do we really believe that? Because if you take Matthew 7, 1, and that's how you live your life, only by Matthew 7, 1, 
You're inviting a wife that has no discernment and no correction ever for yourself or for others. That is soon going to be a problem. That is soon going to be a problem. There is a need, in fact, to appropriately confront, rebuke, and correct the sin in lives of others. That's the point of Matthew 7, 1 through 5. But Jesus is saying as fallen human beings, don't do it the way your nature might lead you to do. My nature, my nature naturally leads me to not only judge and discern, but then also to throw a little condemnation in. That's just my nature. And Jesus says that's the nature of all of us. Paul Miller his is the book that we're using as a resource for this series. And in this chapter, on this passage, he writes this, our own inner evil affects our eyesight. I mean, he was just speaking right to me. And he writes that. And what Jesus says in verse 2 and then follows up with the illustration in verses 3 and 5 is, do you want to be separated and condemned for your sin or would you prefer restorative correction by somebody who has some modicum of self-awareness? And I think we know the answer to that. And this, this sort of restorative correction certainly takes a level of discernment and judgment. Judgment. But not condemnatory judgment. It's judgment that is discerning and restorative. Now, we struggle with this. I think one of the reasons we like just verse 7-1 is because we like to put things in a box and then take, feel like they're taken care of and we don't have to worry about them anymore. Whatever that box might be. Because we hate tension. And I know I say this all the time, but it's just true. We hate tension. Our whole lives is this, is this seeking and this desire to live without tension. I, I'm, it's so obvious from the way we consume goods now. Hasn't Airbnb reduced the tension of finding housing and, and lodging in other cities? Hasn't it? It has for me. Hasn't Amazon reduced the tension and friction in our lives of having to shop and put up with all those people? Hasn't Uber reduced the tension of trying to find convenient and reasonably well-priced taxi service? See, everything... Uh, everything in our consumer lives is moving towards no tension. So when it comes to relationships, when it comes to theology, when it comes to forgiving and salvation, and when it comes to sin, we hate that tension. And so we want to we find the Amazon of theology. That's what we're looking for. Because we want to release this tension because tension's hard work. It requires us to think. It requires us to spend time. It requires us to go deep. It requires us to understand context. It requires us to understand the backstories. It requires us to listen. All of those things that we just don't seem to have time for or a desire to do. Well, let me tell you something. This passage in John 8, it is filled with theological tension. Let me reread uh, Verses 2 through 11, and then we'll unpack it. So early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple, and the peop all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, so the religious professionals, the perps, they brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So here's how the perps believed that they can't lose in this situation. If Jesus refuses to condemn her, he ostensibly violates the law of Moses, which means he can't be a rabbi anymore, can't be a teacher, and he certainly can't be God. But if he condemns her, he suddenly violates his reputation for love and compassion, and it causes a problem with the Roman governing authorities there because he will have uh, 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 okayed a uh, an execution without getting Roman position, uh, permission first, which would have brought the wrath of the Roman government down on him, and that would have eliminated Jesus, which is probably what the perps wanted most, was to just have him eliminated by the Roman government and taken out. So for a simple mortal, it's a mess either way. It's a pretty good trap, and they think they've got him. And I hope you can see how at least begin to see how this ties in with Matthew chapter 7. What Jesus does after they ask him the question is he gives the Pharisees, the professional religious people, he gives them time to what? To think about their own sin. To think about the log in their eye before they do anything. Uh, Brene Brown, who's a, a researcher and a sociologist, um, she, she writes this. I, I, I read this recently. She writes that research shows that you and I should always question the motives and intentions of those who insist that in order to be a part of their group, you must show disgust and contempt, uh, contempt for those who are not a part of their group. That's the perps here. They're showing disgust and contempt for Jesus, for this woman, for anybody who doesn't think exactly like them. There's absolutely no margin. And it's not just enough that they say we disagree. You have to show disgust and contempt for them. That's a problem. Question their motives, Brene Brown would say. Jesus knows their motives, and their motives are sinful. Their motives are not pure. That should be a lesson for us. And, and of course, it's not that this woman is without sin, it's that the motivation of the Jews is rooted in their own wickedness and insecurity. And that is the problem. It's, it's Paul Miller saying in his book, their own evil causes them to not see clearly. And what we see from here again, and this is really a theme of this whole, this whole series, but what we see again here is that genuine love cares for the whole person. Genuine love cares for the whole person, not just one aspect of the person. Genuine love cares enough to rebuke somebody for sin, but also cares enough to celebrate the goodness and the holiness. It cares enough to celebrate the restoration and the redemption. It My batteries are out. Yeah, that's it. The batteries died. 
All right, green, good. So here's the problem with the religious Jews. They had no idea what they should have been doing. What they should have been doing is caring for their people. And this woman is one of their persons. They should have been counseling and correcting and restoring and forgiving. Yes, rebuke her. But, but, but the story actually goes deeper. This is so bad. I want you to hear this. The Mosaic law that they claim to be so concerned about when they bring this woman also calls for the man involved to be stoned. Where is he? Where is he? Now, this is a small technicality, but I feel compelled to point it out. If you're committing adultery, generally speaking, someone else has to be there as well. They're also committing the adultery just by being involved. This detail is what leads many scholars to believe that the religious professionals didn't just happen to catch this woman in adultery. They set it up. It was a sting. It was a scam. They set it up, and the man was on the inside. He was involved, and that's why they let him go. They agreed to let him go in order to trap this woman so that they could bring this woman to Jesus. And for that sin, for abusing the Mosaic law, that man is still culpable, but he's going to be culpable to God. And then the question comes up, what did Jesus write on the ground? And I have to tell you, I am so glad that you all are here today because that question has been asked for 2,000 years and today's the big reveal. You're going to find out what he wrote because I know. I know exactly. I'm kidding, of course. Tons have been written about this. No one knows for sure. Speculation abounds. And I won't go through all the possibilities. There's no time. And besides, that's why God created search engines so you could go and look for yourself at all the different possibilities. There's two that I think are generally really uh, plausible, um, the most plausible. One has to do with uh, the Old Testament book Numbers, chapter 5. Very complex and intricate. You can go and read about that uh, yourself. The, the one that I tend to lean toward is a little bit more uh, contextually uh, contemporary with Jesus. Uh, in the first century, right before a Roman judge, and all of them were living under the government of Rome at the time, Right before a Roman judge would verbalize a decision for a criminal or a trial, with great flair, with great um, anticipation, with great pomp and circumstance, he would, he would boldly write down so that only he could see the decision of what was going to come down. He would write it down and everybody would sit there and wait. Oh, they couldn't wait. They couldn't wait. And so scholars think that Jesus might be mimicking this and that he's writing forgiven on the ground for the woman. Or he's writing guilty for the perps, or maybe both. By the way, there's two other times when a finger writes something in the Bible. So when, when God writes the Ten Commandments into the tablets, and then, what, it, you all know, right? Right, Daniel chapter 5, the writing on the wall. I mean, it's just part of our everyday vernacular. Oh, the writing's on the wall, Okay. That comes from Daniel chapter 5 and what God wrote. It's my favorite verse in the Bible. Many, many, tekel parson. That's what he wrote. M-E-N-E-M-E-N-E, -E -E, tekel parson. You ever want to blow up a conversation, just walk up and just drop that right in the middle of the conversation. What do you think, Frank? Many, many, tekel parson. Like, okay, sorry we asked, all right. What God wrote there about King Belteshazzar was that you have been measured, you've been found lacking, and your days are numbered. <laughs> That's what he wrote for 
King Belteshazzar, who was on top of the world at that moment. Again, if you don't think God's going to eventually come and have a discussion with us about our sin, <laughs> he's going to eventually come. But here's what's really interesting about those two other times where a finger wrote. Both of them were God. So Jesus is God, and he's writing with his finger too. And then this interesting detail. We know it's important because it's in the Bible, but we're not exactly sure what it means necessarily. The older ones walked away first, and then the younger ones. Again, we're not sure why, but I will just say personally that as I get older, I've found that it's a lot harder for me to look at others with con condemnation in my heart. There's just something about age and experience that over and over and over reminds me of how much more I suck and how I shouldn't be so quick to condemn others. Now, it doesn't mean that I don't use discernment. It doesn't mean that I don't um, have discussions and rebuke and confront. That, that doesn't mean that. But, but again, not judging and discernment for division, but judging and discernment for just to try for restoration and reconciliation, okay? So discerningly evaluate somebody's actions, but not condemn. Here again, it's that difference between the person and their behavior. Notice in this passage that Jesus is distinguishing between the person, the woman, and, and her behavior. He's distinguishing between those two things. It's the difference again, as I mentioned last week, between shame and guilt. Shame is who we are. God doesn't see us shamefully because he sent his son to die for us. But, but guilt is what we've done. That's what he's seen. And that's what he wants to correct and restore and fix. And the, and the John 8 irony, of course, is that Jesus was the only one who was sinless, and so he's the only one that didn't get up and walk away. He doesn't throw a stone. Instead, he chose to forgive her. And I believe this is a beautiful example of something that Jesus does effortlessly, but we in the church struggle to be able to do and maybe should work on it a little bit more. And that's this. Jesus combines thoroughgoing justice and deep compassion to a situation that could have easily been fixed by one or the other. Instead, he uses both. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. He restores the person but gives instruction. That's Matthew 7, 1 through 5. That is Jesus living by and abiding by his own teaching in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Jesus' love is a forgiving and redemptive love, but it's also a disciplining and teaching love. And I think one of the things that we need to remember is that the law, God's law, is not corrupt or flawed, but our hearts are corrupt and flawed. Y you and I have the tendency to want to protect our evil hearts by attempting to find fault with God's law or God himself. If we can find fault with God's law or God, then we're off the hook. And so we're looking for a way to blame God's law or God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says, instead of doing that, we can fill our hearts with the fact that Jesus already fulfilled the law and then went as the perfect sacrifice to the cross, something you and I could never do, and exchanged his life for ours. Exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness because he did fulfill the law, something we could never do. That's what happened with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why it's so compelling 
for us to just come to Jesus and be all in for Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for however you did it, including this, this account of the woman caught in adultery so that we could learn from it, so that we could see the comprehensive nature of your love for us. God, that you love us enough to save us and you love us enough to discipline us. Uh, you love the whole person. God, thank you for that. Help us to be reminded of that and to live by that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have a time of reflection. We're going to sing another song together. And we're going to take communion together if the communion servers could.